Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation with George Sakaklidis, we had in March, late March of uh, 2022, we covered a whole bunch of topics because I learned of George a couple years ago. He's a brilliant writer, both fiction and nonfiction. He has a podcast, George Reads George. And uh, he actually writes with a deep grounding in and speaks with a deep grounding in a love of life, biology specifically, botany specifically, but also a critique of civilization and the whole world of profit. So you'll see that uh, early on we uh, we discuss something we don't see quite the same way, but uh, the vast majority we do align on, and I think he's a real important prophetic voice. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. George, I've been looking forward to this for probably two years now, uh, since I first discovered you, I think it was on Facebook. Uh, actually, I think somebody recommended you. And then it was like, I began reading some of your posts. It was like, wow, this, this is, you know, I, I actually thought you were younger than you are. Um, but, you know, you, you write with such, well, first of all, you're a good writer. And I understand how many languages do you speak? I'm curious. Just English and Greek. Yeah, yeah, I'm not very talented with languages. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I only speak English. So at any rate, what I like to do at the beginning is just ask my, my guests to introduce themselves for anybody who's not read you, who's not familiar with you. Um, help us get you. Like, what are you proudest of in terms of your accomplishments? What are you known for? What are your passions? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, who am I? So my, my training is in science. So I've always been curious and um, in, in a uh, sort of scientific and methodical way of understanding nature. And I've, um, I've been interested always in biology and all, all beings, especially plants, since I was a kid. I was a bit of a strange kid, kind of always kind of um, growing plants from seed and just doing things that a normal kid <laughs> doesn't really do. So I was a little botanist, botanist uh, from, from the age of five. Um, I just had a very high, I guess, sensitivity for living things. Um, I, I guess I was born with uh, an environmental conscience, if you want to call it that. Um, and I've, I've seen many uh, plants go extinct in my actual lifetime over in Greece, in Northern Greece, where I grew up. So, I, you know, I grew up on the beach with lots of sunshine and natural environment. And my, my parents would take me up to, to the mountain uh, where there, there was a lot of wild nature and rare kind of plants and species that I would kind of look up on books and um and then you know life became busy i grew up i got three degrees and you know got in the system and then started working in the corporate world and life got really serious and very kind of what, what were your degrees um chemistry food microbiology and plant molecular biology so still in the biology world kind of sure. uh on the edge of of biology but from the very um from a very, I guess, human-centered perspective sure. of, you know, what plant can we genetically engineer next? How are we going to turn this plant into a food? Uh, you know, what, what's in it for us? Mm -hmm. You know, it's very, very industrial, especially when you go to the food, food chemistry and food, food science side of things, you kind of start realizing how artificial our food is. Yes. So... I studied all that because deep down I could see a connection because I, I wanted to explore the connection, my connection, my understanding of the physical and the biological world that surrounds me and that is the, the basis of, of all life. And um, like I said, it just, you know, I, I became uh, another uh, corporate person, you know, helping different companies uh, increase their um, profit profit margin and then I had um, a really um, 
I guess it was a wake-up call. I had a difficult experience in a company with lots of working in a very toxic environment with lots of bullying and backstabbing. And I kind of woke up uh, after that, realizing how toxic our entire civilization is. Everything is done for profit. Everything is done for power. And we try to bully each other and bully nature, yeah. all for the benefit of uh, the, the profit of not just the corporation, our entire society is built on profit, is yeah. built on money, mm-hmm. is built on exploitation, mm-hmm. because exploitation is necessary for profit. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I always say that, you know, uh, human rights and, uh, and nature are the enemy of profit. profit well, that, hold on is, a second. That, yeah, human rights and nature are the enemy of profit. Absolutely. I, that, I like that. I'm, I'm always alerted to memes, things that are, that are tight, concise, and that communicate something worldview significant. So I like that. Thank you. Profit, I mean, profit, and this is how capitalism began when it began to take off, really. It was through slavery. It was through uh, the more efficient, fast, and upscaled destruction of nature, mm-hmm. um, which hasn't really changed in principle. Even when there was just bands and tribes of us going through the savannah, we were still using up things without realizing that, hey, you know, these animals, if we kill all of them, there isn't going to be a flock for next year. And there wasn't. We made them extinct even back then. Mm-hmm. So we've been uh, we've been doing it since since the beginning of time. This is another thing that I think lots of environmentalists sort of try to challenge. Them. No, no, no. We used to be this really benign animal. <laughs> no, we just didn't have the guns and the uh, manufacturing processing uh technology back then to have such a uh, a huge impact on the world and of course there wasn't eight billion of us on the planet right so i became a writer i became a disillusioned human being questioning my uh, my purpose on this world as the only species out of the eight million species on this planet who offers nothing to earth if you think about it, we are the only species that has nothing to offer to this planet. Um, I know it's a very harsh reality, but since we are not part of an ecosystem anymore, we are more of a parasite. So we need the ecosystem, but we don't give something back to that ecosystem. Um, we are actually the only species that Earth would not miss. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with everything with the with the one caveat that one of the things that i've spent a lot of time studying in the last nine years especially but you know my my wife's most significant mentor who was a dear uh, friend and mentor we stayed at his house a number of times uh, paul martin who's of course the father of the overhill overkill hypothesis and you know my wife even uh, led a song at his uh, memorial service uh, bring back the elephants and uh, I think Paul would, I think I can confidently claim that Paul would be turning over in his grave if he thought that his, his theory, which is now accepted as fact widely uh, in terms of human overkill of the, of the megafauna, um, was being used to support the idea that, that humans are incapable of living in place without the, destroying the place. So one of the things that, one of, one of the places where we could lean into because I think we have a different understanding, but I don't want to really spend a lot of time on it in this call because I really want you to share all your stuff. But I just wanted to mention that that, for example, um, this book here, uh, tending uh, it's, the title's backward, tending the wild. For about ninety five percent of human history, in terms of. Uh, cultures that lived with an I thou relationship to the living world, uh, treating the living world as a greater thou, not a lesser it, basically a a kin centric understanding. They knew that they, 
if they were migrating, they always wiped out the big mammals. Whenever they, whenever humans show up with a spear or any kind, any kind of ability to kill at a distance, the big mammals go out. But once that occurs and they actually become native to place, they can live and did live for thousands of years without destroying the place, which is why the taboos are set up. Unfortunately, once human beings started mining metals and competing, they all got wiped out. And so I fully agree with you that, that virtually all human beings in all societies now um, play no positive role. But there is a long tradition of humans not just tending the wild, which is the title of this book, but actually making, by paying attention, making it more fecund, more, more rich and diverse, not just for humans. So that's something Tell that's- you what, I can meet you halfway. Okay. Because it is true that the more our civilization becomes advanced, the more we don't even know what a tree even looks like, the less we're able to appreciate it. People who were surrounded by nature every minute, every hour, they had developed almost a, a, an unspoken connection. And um, yeah, yeah, it's something I, I actually it, have not the one thing, it, as it, much because I'm part of this. Right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I would never use the word advanced for our civilization or our technology. I mean, one of the things that always drives me crazy when I see astronomy magazines say something like, you know, are we alone? The implication is, are we the only advanced consciousness in the universe? And to define ecocidal consciousness, consciousness that's all about taking from nature, exuding waste and thinking that human well-being and, and well, you know, and wealth and progress are one way. That's actually insane from a from a Earth systems perspective. So I, yeah. I refuse to grant the word advanced for that. But in any case, yeah. I want to come back to what your I, story. What I always say is however many innovations we make, however many planets we go to however many solar systems we conquer we will still bomb the children in ukraine we still will even then we will be bombing the children do you actually believe that we'll get off the i mean what i'm curious what is your view of well, let me let me back up. Okay, so the no, title. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, good. Because because one of the things that I want. Well, actually, first, just just finish like in five minutes. Just give people that you know your books. Mention mention some of your things, and then we'll come back to your story in terms of how you grew up and how you came to your current worldview. But I, I want people to to just understand you know what you now do and are and are known for. You haven't touched on that yet. Sorry, I was avoiding it. <laughs> Um, in a in a nutshell, I am um, I'm a writer. I I write mostly essays around um, a, the collection of toxic crises of of humanity, not just climate change, but you know it is a whole syndrome of um, climate change, burnout, um, climate justice, exploitation extinction, the six months extinction, it is all very much connected. Um, and sometimes I go into poetry. So there's books out there. Uh, there are poetry collections and I've recently written a climate fiction book actually, which I never thought I would do. Um, so check that out. It's called A New Earth, The Apocalypse Locus. It's about a bunch of scientists that come across a gene that's um, a very ancient gene that goes back to the origin of life and they end up finding some explanation for why we are where we are and anyway okay um, so that that's mean in a nutshell okay cool well i'm sure there's a hell of a lot more i already know that just from exploring your website but i would love to know okay first of all i'm just curious this is just you know personal curiosity are you first born only child last born like where are you in the birth order I have an older sister. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and you were born in like the early mid seventies. Uh, yeah, mid seventies. Yeah. Okay, great. So, how? What was your worldview as a child growing up in Greece? And then, how did you come to the worldview that you now have? And were there any major 
crises or or mentors or books or you know like a, a little bit about your trajectory from how you understood things growing up and then any big events that then have gotten to where you are now and, and how you hold the nature of our predicament and then the nature you know how you how you view the future so i grew grew up as a normal kid in a way i had everything at my disposal my my I had both my parents, I had my education, I ended up going to university. Um, I always had a certain sensitivity. My mother all, always called me a sensitive kid. I guess that was uh, the first indication that I was an empath. Uh, I could feel not just people, but I could feel nature. You know, when somebody stepped on a, on a flower, I would hurt you know mm -hmm. it was just for me it was just something that i knew i was different from other people mm -hmm. in that respect mm -hmm. other humans um but for quite a long time i ignored it i tried to be normal i tried to be a person that is ambitious and aggressive about their career a person who is studying biology and plants and animals, but studies them for human exploitation to go into a corporate job, not to protect the environment. I was in denial in many ways of, of who I am. And then events in my life around my, my 40s mostly, um, and my, I guess, perhaps the biggest turning point for me funnily enough, was the movie Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. Yeah. I think that we're talking 2007. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it was, it was the moment, because I'm a scientist, so just looking at the data, especially yeah. the, the famous chart where he superimposes CO2 over how many million years and the temperature, yeah. and it actually matches. <laughs> to me, that is just such an iconic moment yes did that and it literally sent shivers down my spine when i saw that yeah so uh, after that after i guess 2007 i kept sort of going back and forth you know still being very busy with my career and being you know a very selfish human um until i realized that i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't pretend anymore because mm -hmm. it had reached me it was beginning to eat me i was spending my time in toxic corporate environments understanding what the chase for power and profit does to people and to colleagues mm -hmm. and just being enmeshed into these pointless office games and i it just i just kind of put the two and two together mm -hmm. how we create these toxic cultures right. and this toxicity goes to everything around us it goes into nature as well we ex exploit each other yes. and we exploit nature so that we can keep building this exploitation machine it's just it's this is why it's a it's an all-encompassing crisis it's yes. it's a human crisis it's a nature crisis it's a social crisis it's an going to become an economic crisis because we are we have gone past the overshoot right um and that made me um compelled to begin to write because it was my my therapy i think that's how many writers start yes. to me i had to tell my story my personal story um and from then on i um regarded it my my life's purpose to awaken other people mm -hmm. um through my writing yeah and are you this able i'm curious are, are you able to generate enough income through your writing to sustain yourself or do you have to sort of supplement doing something else absolutely not yeah i do something else so i, I um i still work for uh, you know an employer um and the writing, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have free time, uh, mostly in the evenings. And sure. that's when I do a lot of the writing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
are, are so I'm, I'm assuming I don't want to assume anything because I don't know enough about I don't know anything about your personal life. So you're you're single and don't have kids, which gives a lot of more time to write. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. when I was 23 years old, I got married and immediately got Alice got pregnant. So I, I grew up with kids. So the only time I could write my first book, Earth Spirit, uh, the, the subtitle was A Handbook for Nurturing an Ecological Christianity. It's just a little 117 page thing. I wrote it between four and 6 a.m. over a period of two months because if I woke up at four and the kids didn't wake up to usually six 30 and Allison. So it was the only time of the day that I was either not pastoring. Cause I was at that time pastoring a church in, in new England um, or parenting. And so that was my own, that was my sole time to write is between four and 6 AM. I lived in new England. I lived in um, one of my degrees is in Massachusetts. I lived in Amherst and Northampton for three oh, years. Sure, yeah. Absolutely loved it. Yes, no, I love Western Massachusetts. I lived in, we lived in Granville. I was pastor of, a, of the only church in a town of 1500 people. So it was like, I was the town parson in the old New England sense. And uh, we would go up to Amherst and uh, Northampton all the time. I, I just love the foothills of the Berkshires. It's just wonderful. Cool. So I'm curious, how do you understand our predicament now? And like, when you look out, say two, five, 10 years, what's your sense of things? Hmm. Um, well, our predicament to me is very simple. I think it's very simple to anyone with a science background so far. I mean, depending on the personality, there are still some scientists that have the denial sort of personality that a lot of us have that yeah. we are born with. It's yeah. a survival technique to deny reality. It's, it's a fantastic mechanism that the human brain has Absolutely. to deny reality and to create its own reality. Mm -hmm. Other animals can't really do that. But uh, I think for someone who is pragmatic and realistic about numbers and evidence, it's very clear that uh, I think overshoot is the word that really uh, very, in a very cold and quantitative way defines where we are. Yeah. Um, I'm passionate antinatalist I believe that it's a function uh, you know population is uh, the biggest culprit um, because you know with earth just can't feed us all and we can't we can't uh, decrease our consumption and our emission per capita to such a spectacular degree that we can even uh, sustain the current population uh, and that gets me in trouble so I'm very very much alone in that sense. And to your question about the two to five years, um, I don't I don't get hung up on like, when is it going to happen? I think what's important is that it's going to happen soon and it's happening already. So- Yeah, that's my me, sense is that we're already well into overshoot and we're well into yeah. the collapse of the, bio I mean, we're 200 years into the collapse of the biosphere. Uh, the, the health of the systems that we depend upon, but we're also a couple of decades at least uh, into the collapse of Holocene stability in terms of the climate and, and civilizational Absolutely. contraction and collapse too. It's just that most people have not studied the rise and fall of civilization. So they don't understand that collapse isn't like a building falling down. It's a step-by-step -step process and, you know, that often takes many, many decades. And I absolutely love your, your, uh, your video on, I think, what was it, the 81 or 80s something civilizations that have collapsed. That, that is absolutely brilliant. I, I enjoyed watching that and it does bring it to life. Yeah, it, yeah, it has happened 80 times before. <laughs> we're, you know, we're not crazy doomers here. <laughs> exactly but 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 none of us or almost none of us grew up in either families or churches or synagogues or mosques or schools where we were taught that so you know we're, we're taught this myth of perpetual progress and so we think of civilization singularly you know there was the hunter gatherers and neolithic and then you got civilization and now you've got us and aren't we the most advanced creatures and i didn't learn anything about dozens and dozens of previous civilizations and the patterns i, I knew i didn't learn any I of that stuff one thing that trips people is that they falsely connect the progress of technology yes which seems pretty linear or even yes. exponential yes 
to an expectation that this means that everything else is going to be more positive, better, (laughs) which is uh, not true. Right. From an ecological perspective, that's a delusion, but most of us don't have an ecological education, you know? Yeah, ecological education is actually really important. If if any of us, if all of us, each of us took one ecology course, and if we had courses in um, in university called, you know, extinction ecology, yes. or you know, I I've just um, in my recent book, in my fiction book, I've made up this university of the future, and all the courses in the university are like, you know. Um, Collapse biology, extinction ecology 101, you know, advanced uh, principles of ecological apocalypse, <laughs> because that's that's all they had to study yes, 20 exactly. years from now. Right, uh, sure. but, you know, things like, you know, people don't know that there were flocks as as big as massive clouds of passenger exactly. pigeons exactly. flying over the United States, that the American chestnut tree, there were something like 12 billion of them. Yes. And it was a, an absolutely massive tree that even humans, entire human communities depended on those chestnuts, which were the most sweet chestnuts that the world has ever seen. Yes. Uh, you know, our human memory is as, uh, as brief as our lifetime. And even in my lifetime, I'm uh, recognizing things like, you know, there's no insects on my windscreen anymore when I'm driving. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it has really accelerated so much. Yes. And um, the more it does, the more we're actually preoccupied with other things. Yes. So things are are really becoming, um, I think the worst scenario is actually coming. That's sort of Mad Max scenario. Now we have this war <laughs> um, and you can, I mean, you can argue that all of this is a result of overshoot. In yes. my opinion, the pandemic was a yes. result of overshoot. because completely agree. We, we got in contact with more wild animals because of our exploitation of nature mm-hmm. and because the increase in temperature also, you know, mm-hmm. increases the, uh, expands the, the, uh, the habitat of, of organisms. Um, many scientists have made this point. So this overshoot has caused climate change. It has caused the plague. You can say it has caused the war in Syria. A lot of people are now admitting that yeah. Syria was because of climate change. And um, you know, conflict, unfortunately, brings more conflict. And the more resources yes. dwindle, the more humans will murder each other for the resources that are left. I mean, God forbid, we're not going to run out of wheat in the next three months. <laughs> because of the war in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think no. I think inflation is really interesting because inflation now is is uh, in my opinion going to enter a permanent state and oh, it agree. is a measure of how dear the price of of everything becomes yes, and exactly. it's a principle again of overshoot yes, exactly. it's the same curve that you see when you're growing bacteria when i was doing that in university <laughs> exactly. when the reefs at top of the curve all yeah. the bacteria go well, wait there's no food so they start shutting down and they yeah. start eating each other and all kinds of different things happen um we are an organism just like yes, that. Yes, exactly. No, I'm, I'm with you 100% on all that. I mean, that's why I found William Catton's book, Overshoot, to be so helpful and insightful because it helped me realize that population pressure is such an unseen dynamic that actually affects everything. And you add that to his understanding of the difference between a, a time of carrying capacity uh, surplus and then a time of carrying capacity deficit and um, the social yeah. dynamics is just absolutely huge. Earth is no different from a petri dish. There is a finite amount of food inside right. this petri dish. Um, so yeah, once the population goes over. Yeah. Well, George, I'm curious. So what, who have been the uh, authors or the, 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 the people who you feel that have either been mentors for you or that you've really greatly appreciated their, um, their uh, impact on your intellectual or, you know, uh, your life. Um, 
So that's one question. And then what do you do? How do you think or feel like what practices or exercises or whatever do you uh, make use of to help you wake up each day excited to be alive and to contribute the ways that you can? You know, what what's in your toolbox for not just coping, but doing even better than that? I'm always interested in what have been the influences on people in terms of their mentors or teachers or schools of thought or whatever, but also in terms of what helps them stay mostly sane, mostly inspired, mostly on purpose, um, mostly equanimous um, rather than just utterly depressed or freaked out or whatever. So those are two different questions. Um, would love to hear. Um, my influences are quite diverse. Uh, there's too many, too many authors to, to mention, I think for me, people that have been involved in, directly involved in activism um, have always inspired me. Um, Extinction Rebellion has been a huge inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from uh, George Monbiot, uh, it, you know, the whole team at Extinction Rebellion, mm-hmm. they had a way of illustrating the urgency um and yeah and you mentioned before we started recording this you mentioned that you live part-time in london and part-time in greece yeah so i don't know if you can see it oh yeah sapiens yeah yeah Yeah, sapiens um absolutely love it you know people who are able to um who are who are brave enough to to show us the mirror so that Mm -hmm. we can see the human that we really are and the human that we could be. Mm-hmm. Um, the potential that we have to, to be a different, a different human. Um, so it's come really from different places. And most of, most of the, I guess, authors that I've been in awe of are people that are actually not very known. Some of them are more active in Facebook. Some of them are... Uh, quite uh, uh, like Gabramate, for example, you know, his his, uh, um, treatise on on the way that we process trauma and how we push it um, further inside of us. And then it comes out in a very, very destructive way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, our relationship with trauma Mm -hmm. uh, by Gabramate, our relationship with death, which is also very toxic because we have this sort of, and I think, uh, what's the name of the guy? Something Steve, Solomon. Oh, oh yes. Um, uh, 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 I forget his first name. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've watched a lot of his stuff. Uh, uh, it begins with an S, something Solomon. Uh, anyway, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Anyway, he, he is brilliant because these people are not talking about environment they're going much deeper they're going back to the human because this is a human caused crisis and it's a crisis of the human soul so it's, it's about our relationship with trauma our relationship and how we process death which we are terrified of and in our in our search in our uh attempt to to win over death and become immortal we are killing everything around us you know, when consumption is actually a death cult. Yes, it is. Because Absolutely. consumption and capitalism, the principle of capitalism is to put a price tag on everything and to put an expiration day, exactly. date on everything. So capitalism, the principle of capitalism is to kill everything, even if it's something like a fridge that is supposed to be made to last decades. We put obsolescence in it as an industrial design technique so that it breaks down and we have to buy new, um, you know, everything, you know, from, from milk to electronics, everything is made to die. And this is a cult that then carries on to other things, you know, even, you know, employees, they are expendable. Everything is expendable and everything can be uh, basically thrown out not right. recycled, right. thrown yeah. out. Right, exactly. The invention of garbage, which is just makes no sense on this planet. What is garbage? <laughs> there is no such thing as garbage on Earth. Everything ends up somewhere. 
there is there is before humans came there wasn't a single item on this planet that could be classified as there's no use for it yeah but now no. we have things like radioactivity and plastic so we we've actually created materials that there is no use for <laughs> well and and even worse than that that continue to persist as toxic for you know geological time scales oh it, it's sheldon solomon yeah sheldon solomon yes, yes 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 love the guy yeah no me too are you familiar with um um stephen jenkinson by any chance uh by he's, name sounds familiar. i'll 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 send you a link because he's he's one of my favorite he's up there with sheldon solomon i mean stephen jenkinson is just amazing he's a death worker and sort of has a whole there was a documentary an hour and 10 minute documentary done on him uh in uh in canada on the canadian film board it was called grief walker and he brings sort of a, a science-based and and uh ecologically oriented understanding of death and, and the rhythms and cycles of nature it's just really brilliant stuff it's great stuff That's fantastic but, yeah yeah well yeah so who are some of the other people that you either consider colleagues that you really respect and admire and sort of feel aligned with or just you know, I'm trying to get a sense of your own sense of your your uh, your in group in terms of the people who think and feel and that you get inspired by and that you in turn are an inspiration to. I wouldn't say I have a tribe. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a loner in many ways. My my personality is um, mm -hmm. uh, what is it? What am I? INFJ, which is just one percent of the population. <laughs> right. We are complete loners we are very much big picture mm -hmm. uh we alternate between different states uh we have a very kind of um split personality almost in a way but that also allows us to be very objective and to lean on many different influences so yes. i'm I, I like anyone who is uh from from the most sort of like academic and eloquent sort of environmentalist, like for example, take Naomi Klein, who is in the circuit of academics, mm -hmm. to people who are complete doomers, I'm going to swear, I'm gonna tell it like it is. I don't know if Chris Hedges, for example, might be in that category, but um, I'm, I'm, and I alternate also yeah. between these worlds. So as long as someone has an honest voice, they, uh, they are always, good in my book and um someone who speaks the language of of nature because i i uh this is this is to a very big um uh level what i try to do is i try to shine the light back on humans being right. like you know you're not the only species on this planet right. there's eight million species and they actually deserve the same rights as you Mm -hmm. So humans might have houses, passports, permits to live mm -hmm. in America, UK, Greece. Plants and animals are not given residence rights, mm -hmm. passports. Mm -hmm. They have the right to life. They have the right to well-being. Right. Um, and, you know, we have this, you know, we have, what do we call it? I used, I used to be in um, Amnesty International. I used to head that up in, in when I was a college student. Um, and we always weren't really defended, you know, the, uh, the Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, well, we need one for plants and animals. Yes, I, couldn't, I could not agree more about my mentor. <laughs> one of my great mentors, in addition to William Catton, was Thomas Berry. And he regularly spoke about, you know, that, that democracies are a conspiracy against the natural world because they give all rights and privileges to individuals and corporations to basically do what they want, where what we need is a biocracy, where the, where the voices and the presence and the beings of the living world also are represented in the systems of a jurisprudence and its systems of governance. Yeah, we, we are really, uh, we, oh, I mean... Uh... It's sad that it looks like the world is going to end without us actually even coming close to realizing the bias of being human centric and the narcissism that we have in terms of thinking that we are intelligent and that, you know, 
a cat is not intelligent because it cannot verbalize or it cannot make emotional faces, you know, because you know how cats are just very kind of, yeah, but, you know, it's, they just, just don't speak your language. Exactly. They have other ways, you know, they'll wag their tail. They have, you know, we put, uh, we, we put an octopus in a, in a little, you know, cage with, you know, treats and see if it's going to be able to find the way to unlock the, you know, we think of intelligence as um, a way of getting yourself out of trouble, right. being able to find food and being able to overcome obstacles. What about emotional intelligence? Right. What about the intelligence to be able to be aware of your surroundings and your connection to everything? Yes. Um, I, like, I like, I know this is going to sound cheesy, but I love that movie, um, Avatar. Oh, yes. I, because I the message is yes. about this connection, that this thread that runs through all life that is this common language, almost like a neural network. And Earth does have this. We have this on Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've, uh, obviously, we've burned out that connection in our, in our mind uh, because we are now, um, you know, we're all little laboratory animals living in these right. houses with electricity and, you know, buttons everywhere. And just everything is just like, you open the fridge and there's everything in there. You don't even know where it came from. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just babbling. The divining of, in, to my mind, defining intelligence in any way that isn't connected to ongoing, a reciprocal relationship with the living world where you are benefited by the living world, the biosphere, and where you in, 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 in whatever ways contribute you know, and rather than just using. And that's what we've yeah. done. But we confuse. We confuse intelligence with processing power. Yes, yes, exactly. As if we are computers. And I mean, this is the tragedy of humanity that we suddenly, at some point in evolution, developed this brain. You know, our brain size suddenly exploded. And even to this day, we still don't know how to use this brain. It's like you gave a kid suddenly a mega computer quantum computer you moved that kid from a tiny little you know disc suddenly to a mega computer and it's now able to send nuclear missiles to wherever it wants you know we are still after creating all the civilization we're still not able to harness and control this brain which can do of course all these great things because it's a huge brain but it is very selfish. Exactly. Everything that we've done has been for us. We have not actually given anything back. All we've yeah. done is, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the we is one that I, I, I might um, challenge only because one of the main things that I've studied the last nine years is the difference between ecocentric cultures and anthropocentric cultures cultures that measure wealth and well-being in terms of how well is the soil doing decade by decade, how well the forest doing decade by decade, how well are the other species doing decade by decade, that that's the measure of wealth and well-being and that we as a culture only survive and thrive when we attend to that first. That's what I call ecocentrism or life-centeredness versus human-centered or, or anthropocentric. And it seems to me every anthropocentric civilization that I know of, uh, I, I don't know of a single counterexample that hasn't gone into overshoot unless like a volcano wiped them out or something. And so I, I did find the Teddy Goldsmith quote though. So he says, again, this is Edward Goldsmith, who was the founder and editor of the ecologist magazine for close to 40 years. He says, it may not be irrelevant to note that even very modest forms of life, like earthworms, dung beetles, and fiddler crabs have no trouble identifying the real problems that they must deal with if they are to survive. <laughs> so calling our kind of intelligence the most advanced is where I sometimes bristle. Not that you, you haven't done that, but yeah. I, I spent I, five minutes last week, just looking at this worm that had um, emerged bravely from a hole in the concrete. And I could tell that it was completely blind, but its body was just swerving yeah. and the thing could, probably sense different wavelengths or smell things you could see that it 
it was sensing the whole world around it. Yes. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, George, I want to begin winding this down, but I want to come back to the question, what helps you on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis? Like what inspires you? What supports you? Um, you know, do you have any practices, uh, exercises? Like what is it that allows you to know what you know and yet to be engaged? I mean, I see you, in fact, when I first encountered you, I saw you sort of in an archetypal pattern uh of more of a shaman which is more the sort of the the solitary the person the big picture and that sort of thing but how do you very far um i uh my i guess my i don't know what we want to call it my coping mechanism let's call it coping mechanism i mean you know the world's coming down (laughs) um i've um especially in the last few years and um i would say the pandemic sort of accelerated that and in a way enabled it i've led an almost monastic life and it is unbelievably relaxing yes because this is the problem this is why we're all asleep because we are too busy too saturated with you know from social media to going from this meeting to that meeting jumping on this train on that car um so I essentially, my, my, I guess my coping mechanism is just removing things from my life, whether they are physical things. So I'm an actual minimalist. I live in a flat with no pictures on the walls. I've got two plates in the kitchen. I, I just love this. It's yes. just, you, know, you cherish things. You know, I, I eat soup from the same cup where I make my coffee and I absolutely love it because everything then becomes so special. Yes, yes. Um, so, and this allows me to, to keep things simple so that my, I guess, my um, never uh, sleeping brain is able to feel inspired and to find, find meaning mm-hmm. um, in a way that's free of distractions mm-hmm. and um, the manipulations of, you know, Netflix and you know all of this and all of that and I do struggle even I mean I know that a lot of my fans are on Facebook and they message me and I do struggle to have conversations with them um, but um, it is it is still a good medium because people send me amazing information or amazing mm. quotes and my uh, my fans write better than me I swear to God some of them really need to start writing because they just send you the most amazing messages yeah 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 the the big thing that i've done in the last eight four months um i've started doing these what i call post doom no gloom zoom calls twice a week so on um here in the east coast united states time uh it's on uh, wednesday nights at 8 30 and then and then saturdays at 1 p.m and we get 30 35 people on every call and it's basically just a just a a space, a virtual space for two hours where people can be authentic about, you know, their understanding of collapse, their understanding of overshoot, their understanding of abrupt climate change, their understanding of whatever challenges they're dealing with in there. Cause people are all over the world, you know, most people are in North America, but, um, but a lot of people feel lonely. There's not a lot of people they can talk to. I mean, they don't have the kind of internet Facebook community or Facebook, you know, connections that, that, uh, that you and I have. Um, and so they just, they can't talk. Sometimes they can't talk to their spouse, um, or the people closest to them. And so this is a safe space to be authentic about things like collapse that they can talk to and not feel like they're, you know, pariah or, you know, stay away. Don't talk to me about that stuff. So, well, George, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think it also helps to keep things positive in the sense that what I've observed about myself is I did go through a big depression and then I realized that it was almost a bit selfish because I was grieving about my life and humanity and the nature that was attached to humanity you know the world that we have known but earth will continue without us. And this is something to actually look forward to. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, and that takes an ecocentric worldview. That takes a larger than human worldview to relax into that and to trust the process. I mean, I evolution and ecology are my sort of sacred disciplines. I mean, I, I've got a little credo that I've sometimes used where I say reality is my God, evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And promoting accountability to the future is my mission. And that's including even if we go, ex go ex not if, but when we go extinct as a species, however soon or far that is, and I think it's probably pretty likely that it'll be soon. Nonetheless, my wife, for example, is one of the North America's leading point people in terms of assisting trees in migrating faster than any other animal can move their seeds. It's just the field of assisted migration. And so that gives her life joy. I mean, all she's doing is increasing the odds of some species of trees moving forward. But I think that that's something that we humans can do that's bigger than us. You know, we can cap the nukes, or at least we can try to do what we can to prevent you know, dozens and dozens of nuclear meltdowns. You know, there are a few things that we can do, even just building topsoil. You know, you might help some worm or some, you know, species of whatever survive on your little plot of land. So ecocentric axons that can nourish us in the process and that are pro-future, regardless of whether we survive or not. Uh, I think that's that's the stuff that gives that's me joy. That's brilliant. That's, yes, th this is such a healthy attitude it does take bravery it does take a leap of faith to reach that element but uh, to, to reach that level but that is absolutely yeah brilliant yeah thank you well george anything you'd like to say to bring this conversation to completion and then uh where do people go to get your stuff and read more about you and from you i would like to reiterate what you said that you know you guys watching you are not alone you are not alone. There are millions of us and there's going to be even more of us. There's millions more each day, I think. Um, you can check me out on Twitter. I babble all day on uh, 99 Black Balloons with one L. Check out my website, sacrocletus.com. All of my blogs are in there. Uh, my, my books are on the evil capitalist website, Amazon. Best I could do. Hey ho. Exactly um yeah google me <laughs> yes good thanks and i'll put that in the in the description box of the the youtube uh, video as well george blessings on you brother thank you for the work you do thank you for your heart thank you for bringing together sort of science the best of the scientific tradition with this deep ecological um uh again we need both yes we need yes. both the heart and the evidence for more information about this project Go to postdoom.com.